Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome, welcome. This is this is another one of these shows. We used to call them scrambles, the scramble. But that was in the old days, the before times. We don't really have a name for it yet. We've been calling it like the scrambly thing or something. And potpourri and smorgasbord, they just don't seem to work. So there's an ongoing contest with a prize of $10 million to come up with a new name for this show. But I, ha- I have obviously a disincentive from anybody ever winning. I would have to pay them $10 million. All right, enough about that. It's time to get down to business, and business will include, a little bit later in the show, a conversation about how big companies without a lot of glamour appeal. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm looking at you, Duncan, but I'm also looking at you, 7-Eleven and Cheetos and a whole bunch of other things, how they get you to actually buy merch, not the merch that they were selling you in the first place, like the coffee and the donuts, but like hoodies and bathrobes and stuff like that. How your lifestyle got blended into perhaps something it was never meant to be blended into, uh, but you're doing it gleefully. Uh, and sometimes ironically. We'll also talk about something that has occupied our attentions in the past and probably will occupy our attentions in the future, the never-ending quest to bring back the woolly mammoth. But now uh, it's like a startup. You know, they got money behind it. Uh, I don't know if that matters. It probably doesn't. All right, but we're going to begin where we often do begin uh, with the pandemic uh, and uh, very specifically. Well, first of all, today there's another grim milestone. Uh, One in 500 people in the United States have now died uh, of COVID-19. You know, that's it's not one in 10, but it's still it's it's a a startling number. Uh, And one um, clinical professor of medicine population and public health sciences, uh, Jeffrey Klausner uh, from the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine, said we're kind of where we predicted we would be with completely uncontrolled spread of infection. Uh, So, you know, like back when we were in the early days looking at curves, like what would happen? You know, what would happen if we didn't get a handle on this? Well, You know, that's one of the reasons that President Biden stepped forward last week with a bunch of mandates. uh, And we're going to talk about those right now and talk about other strategies that may need to accompany a mandate uh, with Debbie Kaminer, uh, professor of law at the City University of New York's Baruch College. Uh, She joins us now. She wrote about this for one of our favorite online publications, The Conversation. Uh, So, uh, Debbie Kaminer, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's begin maybe just by talking a little bit about what the president did that is a departure uh, from what has been the case in the past. And in a way, to me, one of the interesting things and one of the key things is directing OSHA to begin some kind of rulemaking process, right? OSHA now has to to, uh, promulgate some kind of guidelines, not just guidelines, but actual, which they've already done. They've done guidelines. They need, they're going to promulgate hard and fast rules for employers. Right. That's correct. So essentially what President Biden's new mandate from last week um, was, was it was responding to the nearly 80 million vaccine eligible Americans who are as of now fully unvaccinated. 
So he promulgated these new vaccine mandates that are going to affect a total of about 100 million workers. Now, part of it covers federal employees and government contractors who have to be vaccinated. Part of it covers workers at healthcare facilities who get funding from Medicare and Medicaid who have to be vaccinated. And then you're absolutely right that the biggest part, which covers approximately 80 million workers, is asking OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to develop rules that any company with 100 or more employees has to ensure that their workforce is either vaccinated or tested on a weekly basis. And what's really interesting about this OSHA rule is that under the normal process, an OSHA regulation could take years going through the normal notice and comment process to be promulgated. So this new OSHA rule is going to be imposed under what's known as an ETS or an emergency test standard. And this is what can be used when you have employees being exposed to some type of a grave danger from some new hazard. And it is not something that is used that often. And people are already claiming they're going to be challenging this new OSHA rule once it is promulgated. Right. I mean, there's sort of a double edge to this uh, in the sense that, yes, it's amazing that they can get this into effect so quickly as opposed to the normal duration uh, that it takes for for implementation. On the other hand, it's kind of amazing that with a new threat that has now killed one out of every 500 Americans, OSHA actually has never had anything that it could do that had about it that had any teeth in it beyond what already existed. In other words, OSHA already governs situations in which people have to be provided with PPEs. And you could fold COVID-19 into some of those things. But but in terms of anything that directly addresses problems posed by this unique uh, environmental threat, it's kind of amazing that we're just getting OSHA involved. Um, yes, I agree with that. And I think the reason why OSHA is just getting involved at this point is there's not surprisingly a lot of pushback from OSHA being involved. And throughout the summer, the administration had been encouraging private businesses to on their own enact various vaccine mandates. I think this is really being used almost as a last shot type of thing for the very reason it will lead to pushback. And it seems that at this point, based on President Biden's speech, as you pointed out, one in 500 Americans have been killed you know, encouraging people is no longer sufficient. So as we look at uh, all of the things that you just described, all, all of the mandates and, and demands and requests made uh, in this, this single motion by the Biden administration, um, let's sort of compare it with something that you've written about, which is this incredible, almost indecipherable patchwork, this maze, this labyrinth of different states with different rules and different companies with different rules, different entertainment venues with different rules, different educational institutions with different rules. I mean, it would be hard enough. If there were just one entity, if the CDC was given absolute uninterruptible power over this whole situation, it would still be confusing because the biomedical understanding changes from month to month or six months to six months. And because, you know, the the curves change and, and, and maybe require a different response. But it isn't just one entity. It's 
thousands of, of entities. And I'm wondering, to what degree will the federal action envisioned by the Biden administration sweep away some of that difficult to parse set of contradictions and, and put in kind of one set of rules? Okay, so essentially what you know you've been referring to are the issues and the problems we have with the federal with federalism and with our, yes. our system of government. Um, the states, in a nutshell, are able to have stricter rules than the federal government has. So you can sort of think of it as the federal government is going to be the floor in all of this, but the states could still have stricter rules if they choose to do so. Um, and then additionally, private businesses can do, you know, as long as they are not violating any types of anti-discrimination laws, um, private businesses have the right to have their own vaccine mandates. So I think sometimes it's easiest to think of it in terms of there's what the federal government does, there's what state and local government does, and then finally, private businesses have a vast amount of freedom to the extent that they're not violating anti any anti-discrimination laws to um, have whatever types of vaccine mandates they see fit in their workplaces. Right. I mean, we would have to describe the approach to the pandemic in its first 19 months is anti-federalist. You know, I mean, basically, it's, you know, it's all over the map. Um, so I'm also wondering, you kind of already have alluded to this, but another part of uh, the announcement last week was the implication, let the lawsuits begin. Obviously, this is going to be challenged in court umpteen different ways. And I'm wondering, what kind of status do the mandates have uh, prior to any effective court challenge against them? In other words, can can people seek an injunction that stops the Biden mandates in their tracks, or do they go forward until they're overturned? Well, they could seek an emergency injunction. Um, for example, that's what happened with Indiana University had a vaccine mandate, mm -hmm. and there were eight students who went to the United States Supreme Court. They asked for an emergency injunction to keep the Indiana University vaccine mandate from going into effect, and their request was denied. So you could, but um, it doesn't mean you're going to win. Right. So... Um Another part of all this, so one of my sort of rules of public policy is don't make a policy you can't enforce. Um, and I have questions about the ability to enforce this policy absent some kind of universally accepted standard of proof of vaccination. In other words, you can you can put in vaccine mandates, but then how do people prove that they're vaccinated? Well, we get these kind of wimpy little ballpoint cards, most, most of us, that really wouldn't. We couldn't get into a bar with the equivalent of that kind of ID proving our age. But somehow or other, with this life and death matter of whether we've been vaccinated, mo mostly, it varies from state to state once again, but mostly what we've got is this kind of wimpy looking little thing that you, you know, really wouldn't even want to carry around in your wallet because it would disintegrate. So can we sort of discuss the case for uh, some kind of standardized, not state by state vaccine passport, or maybe we, find, we need to find a less inflammatory term for that? 
Right. Well, one thing which is interesting is I agree with you. I think the term vaccine passport ends up being very inflammatory. And I'm not really sure why, because all a vaccine passport is, is digital proof of vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is I'm in New York City. I work in New York City. And in New York City, if you want to go to a restaurant indoors, you have to show proof of vaccination. You can show just your vaccination card. So a surprisingly large number of people are carrying around their little disintegrating cards. Mm. So you sort of do have the proof of either using your card or using what's known as the Excelsior Pass, which is just proof of vaccination. I think that a lot of states might be very nervous about mandating proof of vaccination only through digital proof of vaccination, both because that could end up um, discriminating against people, you know, elderly people who might not be, be less likely to be comfortable with technology or have technology, or people who might not want to get a digital vaccine passport because they're concerned about privacy issues. So I certainly think that a digital vaccine passport, like what's being discussed in Connecticut and what's very similar to what we have in New York, could um, sort of streamline the process. I would be surprised if that was required as opposed to being an alternative to you know these pieces of paper with a proof of vaccination. Right. So um, obviously this will be folded into the politicization uh, of everything else about this pandemic. Um, so, yes, here in Connecticut, our governor has been kind of openly toying with and trial ballooning the idea uh, of, of something resembling a vas vaccine passport or whatever else we're going to call it uh, for a little while here. I'm just going to play you a clip right now of the Republican uh, House Minority Leader Vincent Candelora reacting to that. Having just gone to a game in Yankee Stadium a couple weeks ago, they said the rollout in New York was a complete disaster for them, and they moved away from it. So I went into the stadium without anybody asking me my vaccine status. So there's a lot of interesting things about this in that those very few words. First of all, that his research about this issue was to go to a Yankees game, uh, and, and then also that they were having trouble with it. I would assume one of the reasons they're having trouble with it is people from lots of different states show up at Yankees games and they don't all, all have the New York thing that would maybe allow them to be processed faster. In a way, Candelora is offering an argument for more vaccine passports that are easily recognizable by scanners or whatever you're going to use, right? Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. It sounds like that's what he's doing. <laughs> I myself have not been to a Yankees game, so um, I, you know, I have no doubt that that may have been what's occurring. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is I have been to many restaurants in New York City since the New York rule went into effect. And because that is a smaller number of people, just, you know, anecdotally, every place I have been requires you to actually show you have been vaccinated, either a New York card or another state's card. But absolutely having a digital system would um, simplify, modernize the system and make things go um, 
much smoother. Yeah, and it seems like otherwise. I mean, you guys in New York are in a different situation, but here in Connecticut, we've been effectively on the honor system. I mean, yes, we do have our little paper cards, but I mean, for the most part, we don't get asked for them, although that seems to be about to change. In the space of 24 hours, uh, I got uh, an email from the Jewish Community Center where I live and where there's a gym and stuff like that said, saying you're going to need proof of vaccination to get in here. Uh, and also from a local arts organization called Real Artways saying that for our creative cocktail hour, proof of vaccination. But, you know, once again, it, 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 a lot of that is has been so far on the honor system. You just had to uh, affirm that you've been vaccinated. And what, it gets back to that whole question of what is proof of vaccination? Right. And what, what you were also just describing is um, private businesses independently choosing that they want to mandate vaccination for their customers, which they, of course, have the right to do. And a private business would have the right to set up whatever kinds of vaccine you know, mandates they would want to set up unless it violated some other type of law. But one of the things you had mentioned earlier, which I thought was fascinating, was the whole idea of the politicization of all of this, that when you look at the vaccine mandates, about half of the states have some type of vaccine mandate, with the exception of Maryland, Massachusetts, and Vermont, which are um, led by Republicans, but have a very liberal-leaning population, every other state with a vaccine mandate is being led by a Democratic governor. And then you have 20 states in the country which have actually passed laws prohibiting vaccine mandates. Every single one of those is being led by a Republican. So it is really pretty shocking when you, you know, look at the actual numbers, you know, on a state by state basis, what these states are doing. Yeah, and it almost gets into sort of an area of um, opinion and language researchers like Frank Luntz, uh, who a Republican researcher who has actually become quite concerned about the pandemic and how it's being discussed. And, you know, I, although I was a little bit unplugged last week, I was taking some time off when the Biden mandate came out, it seemed to me that they the Republicans were able to shift the ground pretty quickly and talk about this as the heavy hand of government, the big hand of government, telling us what to do, uh, superseding states' rights, all this kind of stuff. And, and that's why I began our conversation talking about OSHA. It seems to me that if Frank Luntz were advising the Biden administration, he'd kind of tell him to start there. This is for the worker. These are for the, the majority of workers are vaccinated. You know, they are uh, concerned about the pandemic and they really have previously had not much recourse if they felt as though they were in, in an unsafe situation, no matter what kind of business they worked in. And that this is you know, delivering to the average person a tool to do something about an unsafe situation. And to me, it should be kind of marketed, if that's the right word, to the public as such. But I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I actually think that um, in President Biden's speech, when he was talking about the vaccine mandate, he kept emphasizing the fact that the vast majority of Americans have received at least one shot and that we are all being impacted by a minority who are refusing to be vaccinated. So I think he did a really good job about, of trying to sort of um, you know, respond to that criticism of imposing things on the American people and instead, you know, his his whole idea was that what he's doing is 
supporting what the majority of Americans really do want. Yeah. And I think also it seems as though he might be also giving some employers anyway an opportunity to kind of take themselves off the hook. I'm guessing most employers don't want COVID to rip through their workforce. I mean, all you have to do is look at, if we're, as long as we're talking about baseball teams, talk about the, the Boston Red Sox who would have like seven players at a time out recently uh, because of COVID-19 positive tests or direct exposures. Uh, nobody wants that with their workforce or very few people would be willing to tolerate it in return for other kinds of implicit freedoms. But now the employer can say, you know, I don't have much choice about this. I could get a $14,000 fine. Uh, if I don't follow this policy. So that's why I'm doing it. I mean, I assume something like this does kind of give them a way to pass the responsibility elsewhere. I agree with you 100%. I think one of the main, you know, President Biden throughout the summer had encouraged employers to do this. And when that didn't work, I think one of the main purposes behind this OSHA mandate is to sort of provide cover for employers so that they have a way of being able to mandate the vaccine. And I think even if, you know, the the rule hasn't been promulgated yet, even if when the rule comes down, it is challenged, you know, by that point, companies may feel more comfortable saying, look, we had a vaccine mandate, you know, and it was required by OSHA. It worked out well. We are just going to be keeping it. Sounds good to me. Uh, Debbie Kaminer, uh, a professor of law at the City University of New York's Baruch College, uh, has a piece about this in The Conversation, uh, which is a publication online that we recommend. Who's covered by a vaccine mandate? Here's a quick guide to America's patchwork of COVID-19 shot requirements. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And we'll take a break and we're going to put on our... Uh, our Duncan hoodie and our Cheetos pajamas. I guess maybe not in that order. I'm not sure. I'm very confused. I was backstage in Pomona And that's the way I like it She drank beer with Coca-Cola And that's the way I like it And that's the way I like it She told me about the winds from Santa Ana that's the way I like it. That's the way I like it. She told me she loved me like fireworks. And that's the way I like it. So Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
We are back, and it's time for you to lift your sleepy head up off your McDonald's chicken nugget pillow and ignore that strange tingling going on inside your Tesla shorts and and pull on your Duncan hoodie. And we're, Because we're going to talk about the fact that you are paying companies right now to wear what used to be considered promotional merchandise that they would try to get you to wear just so you could walk around advertising their brands. But now you are paying your hard-earned money to those companies. And a person who's done a good job of documenting and observing this phenomenon is Laura Kelly, a contributor to GQ. Her piece this week is Welcome to Duncan World. It focuses heavily but not exclusively on the phenomenon, particularly here in the Northeast, uh, of Duncan uh, doing um, seemingly successful limited edition merch drops. Uh, so first of all, uh, welcome to our show and congratulations on this article, Laura Kelly. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So maybe we should explain to some of our less clued in listeners what a limited edition merch drop is. Sure, I'd be happy to. So a limited edition merch drop is basically when a brand drops a limited amount of merchandise for a limited period of time. So it's something that really originated with um, the streetwear brand Supreme. And it's something that a lot of other streetwear brands have mimicked since. And uh, in even more recent years, we have seen brands like Duncan mimic it as well. So basically, a brand will announce that you know, right now we have a limited amount of X item on our website. And if you happen to see the post, you can log on and buy it. And then um, when the time is up, it's gone and you can't get any more of the merch. Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of, I probably know this mainly through the world of sneakers, um, you know, where Nike will put out a limited edition, certain kind of Michael Jordan type sneaker or something like that. That at least is kind of what Nike does anyway for a living, right? They make and sell sneakers. Um, yeah, and you can say the same thing about, I don't know, FUBU or something. You know, I mean, this, the stuff that they would put out was the stuff that they make and sell anyway. So this is a little bit different, right? This is, we, we are now talking about, and it's not just Duncan. I discovered our technical producer, Kat Pastor, when the opportunity was presented to buy limited edition, edition 7-Eleven merchandise. She seized that opportunity, possibly to her financial detriment, and bought pretty much anything she could get her hands on. And so, I mean, Laura, this is a little different, right? This is like companies, this isn't the stuff they do for a living. This is the stuff that you wear or use to signify that you buy the stuff they do for a living. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you bring up sneakers. So Duncan in uh, 2018 actually started dipping its toes into the world of branded merch with a pair of sneakers. I see what you did there. Yeah, thank you. No pun intended. Um, But yeah, they found success with that. People were posting about it on social media and they were excited about it. So they have started releasing increasingly sort of off the rails swag since then. Um, So you'll often see brands doing, yes, sneakers, um, other merch you might expect to see are t-shirts or hoodies or sweatpants or sort of conventional merchandise. Um, what's interesting about Duncan's approach in particular is that they're doing sort of crazy zany items. So for example, they released a bridal collection um, and someone I spoke to for my article got married in New Hampshire in July and she actually um, was thrilled in advance of her wedding to purchase um 
a limited edition Duncan uh, bridal robe to get ready in with her bridesmaids. She got special uh, Duncan tumblers for her wedding party to drink Duncan coffee from as they got ready. And she said that the only thing that she regretted about it was that Duncan didn't have um, bridal robes for the entire bridal party. Um, so they've been doing all sorts of items like that. They've also done bathrobes. They've done bedding. Um, they did like a tandem bike. And so I think with Duncan's strategy, um, definitely part of it is getting people to go outside of the house in like a Duncan hoodie or something like that. But they also are interested, I think, in generating buzz on social media through um, having these sort of crazy items that you might post from home. All right. Since you just said the words social media, we have to uh, veer off and, and talk a little bit about how that was done. And I actually have a, a document issued by the government that says that because of my age, I do not have to understand Instagram influencers or know who they are. Uh, but you don't have that document. So you had to figure this out. And that led you to somebody that you probably already knew about named Charlie D'Amelio. But uh, you better tell our audience about Charlie and what she had to do with all this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Charlie D'Amelio is sort of known as the queen of TikTok. She has more than 124 million followers, and um, she's very, very influential on the platform. And so Charlie was um, has been a big fan of Duncan for a long time. And for um, a couple of years now, she's actually been posting herself with um, you know, a giant iced coffee before she does one of her viral dances and that kind of thing. So um, Charlie was posting without being paid by Duncan about Duncan and Duncan pretty quickly um, noticed that and uh, started a partnership with her. So now she's like an official Duncan ambassador or partner and she um, posts about the brand on her page. She does ads. Um, she actually um, had a couple of special limited edition uh, Duncan drinks. So they made a drink called the Charlie. And then um, in February, they made another drink called uh, the Charlie Cooled Foam, which was uh, the same as the Charlie, but with cold foam on top. And, um, you know, this is a really fun campaign. It's effectively reaching young people, but it also is, um, you know, kind of a savvy business move on Duncan's part. A Duncan spokeswoman told me that uh, within a few days of launching the Charlie, they sold hundreds of thousands of the drinks and that the Charlie cold foam did even better. And um, the president of Duncan Americas actually boasted to shareholders in a meeting uh, last year that uh, the day of this launch, uh, the app had its most uh, users ever. So um, Duncan is definitely being strategic about generating buzz specifically on TikTok. Um, Duncan itself has millions of followers on the platform. They're doing some drops on the platform itself. Uh, so they like dropped a onesie on TikTok that sold out in four minutes. And so, um, yeah, they're definitely being very savvy and strategic. And um, just one more thing on this is that Charlie was a pretty savvy partnership for them to launch because um, Gen Z is known to love authenticity. Um, they're pretty savvy about when they're being marketed to. So I think it was really appealing that Charlie authentically liked Duncan, was posting about it without being paid. And so um, people are pretty open to her posts, even though she now is paid to promote the brand. Well, I'm so glad you brought up generations because, yeah, Gen Z, millennials, they, I think they have a, I, I don't know. I mean, let's 
let's stipulate that the movie, The Trial of Chicago, the Chicago Seven, or whatever it was called, that's out. Those were actually real people. I was alive when they were alive. Their whole attitude was f the corporations. I mean, it wouldn't occur to them to enthusiastically and unironically embrace the idea of running around in a Duncan shirt or a you know Cheetos. What, you know, I don't know, jogger or something. Um, but there, I th- there just seems to be a little bit more of a symbiotic and, and less adversarial relationship with the people who market things and the people who buy things that are marketed in the case of some of the younger generations. I don't know. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I, I definitely think so. And I think, like I said, I think that it's important that Duncan um, was able to seem authentic and relatable. You know, Duncan itself, um, through sort of like just its uh, longtime brand identity, is sort of known as like a normal brand, right? It's unpretentious. It's not frou-frou. You go there to sort of get a utility cup of coffee. The drink to get there is, you know, a regular coffee. And so I think that um, some people in Gen Z sort of have this attitude of they're going to be marketed to anyway. Um, And it's way more fun if the brand is authentic and relatable and seems like something that real people like. Um, For the article, I spoke with a pen professor named Barbara Kahn. And one point that she made uh, about Duncan's strategy of appealing to Gen Z is that Gen Z loves community. And something like a drop is inherently creating a community, right? Because there's an in-group and an out-group. And so you're part of the in-group if you see the drop on Instagram or whatever and immediately get the stuff and then you post about it. And then if you don't, you're out of the group. And um, that sort of is what it is as well. So I think, um, yeah, to your question, if you're going to be marketed to anyway, I think it's appealing to be uh, marketed to by a brand that's fun, that sort of speaks the language without trying too hard, which I think Duncan is um, is doing a pretty good job of achieving. Right. So there's this French uh, brand researcher named Clotaire Rapai, who would fit right into any of your future articles of this kind, uh, who was a long, long time ago at one point, he was hired by Nestle to introduced coffee to Japan, which eventually was done successfully. But Nestle couldn't do it at first. They couldn't get Japanese people to stop drinking tea and start drinking coffee. And as Rapai researched this, he realized the Japanese people had no what he called code for coffee. Coffee didn't mean anything to them. It didn't mean coming home. It didn't mean a happy smell from childhood. It didn't mean mean anything. And so it was almost impossible to make commercials about it or market to them. And, And what he eventually convinced Nestle to do was to develop coffee-flavored and coffee-smelling desserts for children so they'd get kind of get into it. And then as they got older, they'd buy coffee. Well, Duncan kind of did that organically, right? I think people, particularly, you know, Gen Z, millennial uh, people, uh, they, their code with Duncan is, it's this wonderful donut I used to get. And then I got older and I started drinking coffee. And then I entered this life, first in college maybe, and then in the workforce, where I kind of needed a friend to help me keep going sometimes particularly in a digitally demanding environment where it's hard to get away from your work. And that's that's when Duncan stepped in again. You know, I could ca- get caffeine uh, from them. I'm addicted, but in a good way. You know, it's, it's there are all kinds of pleasant associations that probably started with baby duck-like imprinting in childhood. It's no wonder people want to like, get some pajamas with this stuff on it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Duncan has intentionally as a brand been trying to market especially sweeter drinks to young people. You mentioned the donuts, but additionally, Mm -hmm. they've 
They have these culotta drinks, which are basically sweet slushies. And the idea is like the whole family can come in and, you know, the adults can get coffee and the kids can get whatever sweet drink. Um, one of the young people that I interviewed for this article, a young woman named Molly Gruber, who's actually a Duncan influencer on TikTok as well, um, said that she feels that her peers love Duncan. And one reason is because um, you can get really sweet drinks. Uh, it doesn't hurt that they're also more affordable than somewhere like Starbucks, which has a little bit of a higher price point. Um, but I think just frankly, like the very sweet syrups and things like that are appealing to, to young people, even mm. if they are drinking coffee, you know, it's a little more approachable than, a, you know, black coffee or something like that. Right. And you are for that reason, you are sort of shouting out your I mean, as you said, these generations don't like to be artificially marketed to by, say, Instagram influencers who are just getting paid uh, to do it. It's got to feel organic. It's got to feel real on that end. But it's got to feel real on their end, too. You know, in other words, they want to have a Dunkin bathrobe because they really like these products and they've enjoyed them for a long time and it's meaningful to them. So, yeah. So that's why it's happening. Congratulations, Duncan. If anybody wants to do Christmas shopping for Cat Pastor, she does want Cheetos merch, right? That's what you want, right? Cheetos merch. She, that's coming next. And there are, are those pajamas that you sent me a picture of? What are those? A sweatsuit. She would like the Cheetos sweatsuit uh, and she would like it unironically given. Uh, well, listen, this has been so much fun to talk about. And so thank you so much for writing such an interesting article, uh, Laura Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk to you. All right. The piece is in GQ. It's called Welcome to Duncan World. You were living in it already. You just didn't know. I added that subtitle. All right. So meanwhile, uh, we're going to go to a break. Practice your woolly mammoth calls. <laughs> like that. That's a, that's a woolly mammoth call. Uh, because we're going to get woolly mammoths back, I promise. All right, here, Mammoth, here, Willie. That's you just have to learn how to do that, uh, and then they'll come. They'll come, you know, running across the Siberian tundra towards you, uh, but not quite yet. And we'll explain that in just a second. But first, I have to thank Cat Pastor, who uh, is not wearing. Uh, what are they, Cheeto sweatsuits today, but hopes to be in the near future. Technical producer and episode producer, uh, the great Jonathan McPants. Uh, now we are going to talk, in fact, about the woolly mammoth to Carl Zimmer, the science columnist for the New York Times. His newest book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. We did a whole show about that with him, but he's back to talk about the news. So, Carl, first of all, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. And the news is not they're going to try to bring back the woolly mammoth because that's been going on for almost 10 years now, if not longer. The news, I think, is that there's sort of startup money being pushed into it, right? Uh, this has been a dream of some scientists for going on a decade now. But uh, what's happened uh, as of now, as of in the past few days, is that there's actually a company that ha has been formed with $15 million of initial seed round funding. 
And there's some fancy names that have floated around this project. Peter Thiel, not always beloved and embraced by all of us. Uh, the Winklevoss twins, uh, you, you loved them in the social network. I mean, some of the sort of big names of, of startup capital uh, have been sniffing around at this. Well, you know, Peter Thiel uh, gave the lead scientist on this project, George Church uh, of Harvard, uh, $100,000 a few years ago. Um, basically, they were sitting around and Thiel said, what's your craziest project you're working on? And Church said, I'd like to essentially uh, bring back the woolly mammoth. And so he just, you know, wrote a check. Um, so, you know, th these are not just people who do a lot of startup investing these are people with a lot of money and uh you know the this is the kind of research that um uh, you know cautious government uh funders might be leery of <laughs> you know they might not think that this might be the best use of taxpayer dollars and so you know it's been sort of eking along on a shoestring bug budget un until now but now there's some fairly serious money behind it Right. I feel like that should almost replace, you know, the term FU money. You know, how much money do I have? I've got woolly mammoth money. I can afford to put money into bringing back the woolly mammoth. And I think that's especially true because, Carl, reading your article, it seems like we're not on the brink of getting woolly mammoths back. Quite the opposite. Some of the most basic problems have not been solved. Yeah, th this is... Um this is, I would say, a dream. Uh, this is, uh, but, you know, realities come out of dreams. Uh, and so, you know, there are things that uh, seemed impossible when this dream began almost a decade ago that have already been achieved. I mean, they're, they, they have already done some things, like, for example, figure out certain key genes that woolly mammoths had, insert those into cells to kind of understand how they might have worked. Like, they're, they're, they are making steps towards this goal, but, but, there are, are many, many more steps until they might reach it, um, and no one knows if they'll ever achieve it. And and it, it isn't really sort of uh, inventing or reinventing a woolly mammoth ab ovum so much as it is adapting things about the elephant to make them more woolly mammoth-like. Is that a fair statement? That's correct. So um, it's not like someone's going to take a frozen woolly mammoth and put it in the microwave and then something comes shambling out of the, of the microwave. <laughs> um, this is not Jurassic Park where you have like exact replicas of things that were around long ago. Essentially what this is, is genetically engineering an elephant with some of the traits that woolly mammoths had. That's the idea. Um, so, you know, it's you could think of it as a mammoth-like elephant or a mammoth-elephant hybrid, whatever you want to think about. I mean, but uh, but no, it won't be, you know, an exact replica of the woolly mammoths that went extinct some thousands of years ago. Right. Since you mentioned Jurassic Park, let's uh, let's hear an appropriate warning about this. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent? Uh, in what you're doing here. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. This isn't, this isn't some species that was obliterated by deforestation or, or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot, and nature selected them for extinction. I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. <laughs> 
Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Well, you ignore the warnings of Jeff Goldblum, always at your peril, uh, and certainly there. And, I mean, it really does bring up some fair questions, including, I mean, the idea is to, if if you could get a bunch of these uh, sort of woolly mammoth two models, uh, to release them on the Siberian tundra. And it is fair to ask, isn't it, what could go wrong? Uh, you know, whenever you introduce a species, uh, you should be asking, well, what could go wrong? What are the risks? But also, what are the benefits? Um, and um, it's a, I'm a little unclear uh, on why when everybody talks about Jurassic Park, what exactly woolly mammoths have to do with velociraptors? <laughs> fair I mean, enough, I fair mean, enough. What, what's the, uh, I, that source of terror from a movie, I'll point out, I'm not sure how, how relevant that is to deciding whether this is a good idea or not. And that's certainly like a, a subject of fierce debate among conservation biologists, among ethicists and so on. Like that is a completely valid d- debate. But to, you know, quote a fictional character talking about a fictional process involving things that were extinct 65 million years ago is, it's it's odd, I'd say. I, I find it, I mean, I've been writing about this whole de-extinction idea for about eight years, I wrote about it first in National Geographic, and um, everyone just brings up Jurassic Park as if that settles it. And mm-hmm. I came up to saying, like, well, that was a, a movie, all right? Like, <laughs> that never that never happened. I mean, we can talk about cane toads in Australia, for example. Then I'm all ears. Like, yeah. yes, you introduce a species, and bad things may happen. On the other hand, in terms of genetic tinkering, well, like, you know, the corn that you eat, the, the the yogurt that you eat i mean like we're we're dealing with all sorts of things that are the product of of genetic alterations so you know we we shouldn't be naive about about the, this process either although there's a lot to go to discuss yeah. but i think we can leave the dinosaurs out that's all, right. all i'm saying yes well now i feel really predictable but that's okay um <laughs> the um but isn't well, i'm glad i'm glad you brought it up so we could like talk about <laughs> yes. it because like you know it is something i mean you should see my twitter feed it's just full of <laughs> of jeff goldblum right now uh, well i mean so so is everybody else's uh, but for <laughs> but for different reasons but isn't part of the argument being bodied forth here for this or for maybe trying this is that woolly mammoths if you did put them out in Siberia would somewhat transform the environment, maybe back to a state that they transformed it to back in the old days, uh, um, and maybe even do things that would ameliorate uh, the the climate crisis we're having right now. I mean, some of the stuff that was described, I didn't really get. Like, I thought moss was really good. It was a really good carbon sink, and the woolly mammoths would just tear up all the moss but put something else back back in there. I mean, there's an argument being made, not that this would have no impact, but that it would have a good impact. Yes. Um, the, the, the argument that people are putting forward for the value of doing this is that um, – in a place like Siberia, up until 10,000 years ago, there were woolly mammoths there who, it has been argued, are really, were acting like ecosystem engineers. Um, and so they were essentially like maintaining a grassland and the grasslands um, are in, can store huge amounts of carbon. They're very resistant to erosion. They're very healthy ecosystems. And once mammoths and other big mammals disappeared, uh, 
possibly due to, uh, in part, to human hunting. Um, so we played a part in this. Um, these ecosystems changed, and now you had now you had a tundra that was dominated by moss and by some shrubs and, and trees. And this ecosystem now is actually losing carbon. It's melting away. It's eroding. It's it's unstable. And so there have been ecologists, particularly a team of Russian ecologists, who said. Um, we need to do everything we can to bring back that grassland that because, you know, there's huge amounts of carbon locked up in the tundra and we don't want to let it let it go. So uh, I just we have time for one last question, and it's there in your article. This co- the company is called Colossal. And you say and Colossal's investors may have to question have a questions of their own. How will these men? <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. How will these mammoths make money? <laughs> so what is the answer to that question? Well, I mean, I have not gotten any precise answers, but, um, you know, but the fact is that um, all the steps that you might take to try to, to, in effect, bring back a woolly mammoth, uh, there are all sorts of of applications to those tools that you could envision. Um, You know, so, for example, um, there's a lot of genome sequencing uh, from fossils and genome analysis and so on. These kinds, of, these kinds of computational tools could be really important potentially for, uh, for example, understanding human health and medicine. Um, if you're trying to figure out how to um, produce uh, these embryos that are essentially sort of mammoth-like uh, elephants, there's a whole lot of reproductive technology that's going to go into that. Could that be used, for example, for um, producing new kinds of livestock? Maybe. Um, we don't know. But there are a lot of steps along the way where an argument might be made that, you know, the basic research in the past has spun off all sorts of uh, important applications. And certainly George Church, who's leading this, um, has a whole string of patents and companies behind him, largely involved with ge- genomics and and medicine and so on. So uh, so it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility that they may make make a little money back. We'll right. see. It's a little like the space program throwing off Tang and Teflon, whatever else they came up with. Um, all right. Well, this, first of all, let me just tell you, part of the answer to the question is they'll hybridize them down to this roughly the size of a Newfoundland, and you'll have uh, woolly mammoth, miniature woolly mammoth house pets, and then you'll have to have mammoth chow and mammoth beds, and Chewy.com will be selling all this stuff. And uh, a lot of people make a lot of money, <laughs> and that's how it all happened. But but it's not going to happen anytime soon, but we do recommend that you read the article by our excellent uh, and very welcome guest, Carl Zimmer, the science columnist for The New York Times. Uh, his newest book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, and this article is a new company with a wild mission, Bring Back the Woolly Mammoth. Thanks for doing this, Carl. Thank you. And thanks for listening today. Don't uh, forget at all that uh, we still need a new name for this kind of show. Either that or we have to stop doing it. That's That's another option we have for these kind of, you know, potpourri kind of things. Anyway, thanks for listening. No one that he knows.
Brothers. We started out with five, and four of them are gone. We found a new friend in a mountain.